You're listening to Second Breaks, a show where we explore midlife transitions and discover all the ways that we can thrive not only through them, but because of them. My name is Lou Blazer, and if you don't know anything about me, I am the publisher of Midlife Cues, a weekly newsletter about intentional living and personal growth in midlife. Check it out and subscribe at midlifecues.com. That's midlife, C-U-E-S, one word, dot com. All month long, we are talking about midlife health and well-being here on the podcast. I will be joined by experts who can help us understand the science, what's really going on inside our bodies, and most importantly, identify key action steps that we can very quickly incorporate into our daily lives. The goal, of course, is so that we can be our healthiest, best version of ourselves in our middle age. Now, today we're talking about stress, such an important topic for us midlifers because stress has a huge impact on our physical, mental, and emotional health. In addition, it can affect our cognitive and decision-making abilities. But not only that, stress can also strain our relationships, negatively impact our productivity and performance, and can lead to other unhealthy coping mechanisms such as substance or alcohol abuse. So we don't want that, right? No, you'd think that with such wide-ranging consequences, we would know how to handle this. But sadly, not very many of us have been taught nor have we learned how to effectively manage stress. Personally, I will tell you, my version of stress management in my 20s and my 30s and early 40s was not to let it show. (laughs) That's how I manage stress, not to let it show, to demonstrate an even keel and to show to the world how great I was in handling stress. Of course, what's happening externally wasn't always a good indicator of what's happening internally. Um, During all those years when I was, quote unquote, handling stress like a pro, I was also experiencing sleep deprivation, migraine headaches, and frequent stress hives that would appear like all over my face, my neck, my arms, which, of course, I just laugh off and joked about. But what happened was when I got into my 50s, I started seriously reading up about mental health and particularly brain health. That's when I understood the link between stress and healthy brains. And I finally, you know, realized that my ability to manage and relieve stress is a key component to maintaining brain health. So this is such a top priority for me because my mother had dementia. So, you know, this became top priority for me immediately. So one of the things that I did was to identify the key stressors in my life 
and to create healthier boundaries so that I can minimize those stressors to begin with. But of course, you know, we cannot remove all stressors, no matter how hard we try. So I've also had to learn better ways of relieving stress. My previous conversation with Shulamit Berlef Tov back in 2021 was truly instrumental in helping me understand how to create my personal set of stress relief practices. That's why I wanted to bring back that important conversation as part of this series on midlife health and well-being. So Shulamit, or Shula for short, is a mindset and resilience consultant. She typically works with women entrepreneurs and using her background as a trauma therapist, she helps her clients understand what affects their mental and emotional well-being and then helps them create a plan to take care of them. Because, you know, we live in an era of relentless stressors that can make us lose our minds on a daily. (laughs) So in our conversation, Shula gave a very simple explanation of what stress really means and how our bodies respond to stress. We dove into the principles of stress relief. And although we did talk about examples, like specific techniques of how these principles may look in practice, Shula emphasized that there is no one set of cookie cutter techniques. In fact, she advises that we do not just copy someone else's stress relief. We have to figure out what works for us. And so she would rather talk about principles so that if we understand the principles, then we can figure out the the actual technique that works for us. I hope that you'll find this conversation. You know what? I know you're going to find this conversation useful. And I would love, love, love to hear from you as you listen to this episode. Let me know what you think. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Lou Blazer. Or you can email me at lou at secondbreaks.com. Okie dokie, let's get on with the interview. You're going to hear Shula define stress right off the bat. Kind of a layperson definition that I really like is when the demand exceeds capacity. So it exceeds my perception of the resources that I have available to mobilize to help me out. And that can be my inner resources, my physical, mental, emotional resources, or it can be the local resources like in my network, or it could be systemic resources as well, right? So that we can perceive stress, we can feel like the demand is o- is over what we can handle, even when it's not a direct impact on us, but we can see that the system, the systems in place are not capable of responding, right? So the stress is experienced kind of across, like on many different levels and it's a mismatch. And that mismatch between demand and capacity is experienced as, as difficult, right? And, and so we call it stress. And what happens when we're under stress in the most, when we perceive that the demand exceeds capacity, right? The body, the organism mobilizes itself to attempt to respond to the demand. So on a really, really basic level, we can think of ourselves like animals, right? And the, the stressor, the demand as a bear. So if we're bunnies and we see a bear, 
on a very basic level, we get the alarm message in our system, which mobilizes our nervous system. It stimulates the sympathetic nervous system so that our physical body is prepared to either run or fight, right? Now, I want to take a little parenthesis because I think it's really important to recognize that this is a very mammalian-based response. And in humans, there's a wider range of stress responses that that includes not only fight and flight, but also fawn and freeze. And the vast majority of humans, because of the situations in which they find themselves, will either fawn or freeze because it is the only option available to them to survive the situation. So I'm especially talking to women and men, women survivors and men survivors of trauma, women who've been sexually assaulted, men who've experienced unwanted sexual contact, right? That we, most humans don't fight or run. Most humans in those situations will freeze or fawn. Fawning meaning going along, right? Because you cooperate with the threat so that you can live to see another day, right? So I want to just take a little parenthesis from the fight or flight to say that if what you did was fawn or freeze, of course you did, because that was the best option to survive in that moment. One thing that you said that I just realized now, so I am an off-the-chart introvert. And you know, one of the classic definitions of introverts is that spending time with people uses up a lot of our energy. And when you were talking about stress being demand exceeding capacity, something clicked in my brain that when I'm at a party or in a big conference, that is how I feel. I feel that the demand for me to socialize, to participate is so much more than I can give. And so I feel that conference very stressful. I feel the party very stressful because of that. I'm like, oh my God, that is why I feel that way. Sure. And so because your body coming back to the body's mobilization, right? Your body uh, engages to respond to the situation around you, but it takes everything you've got. Yes. Right. Right. So then afterwards you feel depleted. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love the definition. Demand exiting capacity. You know, there are certain times when we are in a stressful one-off situation, right? Like, Okay, I'm moving houses. There's lots of packing, unpacking, you know, things need to be coordinated with the movers. So that's stressful, right? Yeah. And, but it requires a lot of effort. Right. So that's like a, a stressful situation versus a lot of people say that they're in chronic stress mode. Right. Is there a difference in terms of our body's ability to cope or our mind's ability to cope between I common sense tells me there is yes so I'll come back for a moment to the idea of the physiological activation that occurs in the body so that physiologically we prepare to run or to fight so even when you freeze or fawn you still have the physiology the fight flight physiology activated in your body which means that your heart beats faster your respiration is shorter, shallower, more uh, rapid, your blood pressure goes up, you might find your palms sweaty, you might find your digestion shutting down, you have muscle tension. All these are functional, right? That if you were an animal and you had to run, you would need your body to be doing this so that you could run or fight, right? 
So if you think of it, this is this is an activated state. And this is a good thing because otherwise we'd be marshmallows, right? And if you think about it, what happens in a, like if you think about a standard car, a car with a standard engine, standard mm, shift gear thingy, <laughs> like it's so technical. Anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, transmission, that's the word. There you go. <laughs> transmission. So you don't engage the clutch, but you do mash on the gas pedal. What happens to the motor? It gets hot and things, when they get hot, they rub together. There's friction, which creates more heat. Then they start to melt and break down. And the rubber things that are at a different temperature under the heat break down, right? If you rev it too hot, too hard, too high for too long, yes, right? Yes. Yes. Same thing with the human nervous system. If you rev it too high, too hard for too long, which is the chronic state as opposed to the acute state, you start to experience the effects of that. I mean, if you just think of the heart as, or, or any muscle, right, that you can have an overuse injury uh, on, in a muscle in your body, you can experience a kind of overuse injury of your whole physiology if you're exposed to that chronic activated response state without a return to this rest and digest the parasympathetic nervous system engaging so that you can uh, rest, rest and digest and restore in the name of then returning to face the next challenge when you're at, when you need to respond again. Right, right. So it's not about never having stress, never being activated. It's about a flow between the two states. Yes. I want to go back to something you said earlier, that even if we've decided that just for peace sake, I'm just going to go along with yep. this thing that I don't like what's happening. And so I'm just going to go along. Physiologically, the body yes. is reacting that it has reactions that are not peaceful reactions. Correct. Yes, yes, exactly. That's, you hit a, That's very important to notice. Yes, that, that our, our physiological experience can, we can still be in that activated state, even though we're um, outwardly appear quite level headed. Right, right. Yeah. So, like, for example, I may not be fighting with my husband, but I'm stewing inside. So it's still the same. And your heart is racing. Your teeth are clenching. Your right. mind, is, your, you're going around and around in circles. You're still having that activated physiology, right? Yeah. Right. So it's funny because sometimes, I guess that's why sometimes you, you hear people say, I would have never guessed because they don't see the outward manifestation of the, the stress. Yes. Because this person is very good at <laughs> showing an even keel thing. Yes. Uh, whereas, but inside, it's all that stuff is happening. And then one day it's just going to go. Phew. Yes. Because it takes effort to hold that in. Right. So not only are you having a demanding experience on the inside, you're placing the extra demand on yourself to hold that in and to keep a, keep a straight face, a level head. Right. And without some way to discharge physiologically and emotionally what's happening, um, yeah, you're right that it will, the effort of holding it all in and it will, you know, it's like um, keeping the, right, quite literally keeping the lid on something. If you put it on a boiling pot, a pot of boiling water, eventually like it's going to boil over. Yeah. Because again, the demand of holding it down exceeds your capacity to hold it and it just overflows. Right. Um, do you, have you found that our coping mechanisms 
change as we get older? Do we get better at coping or do we get worse at coping? <laughs> uh, it's a complex situation. My understanding of how my experience and understanding is that without a concerted effort to make a shift, then as people get older, they become more and more like themselves. Right. Yes. And that's the same as under stress as well. Like if a person is under stress, they become more like themselves. They become more of what they always do. They kind of like really dig their heels in because when we are activated at that level of stress, right, we do what I call flipping our lids. We the prefrontal cortex, which is if you can envision kind of like the forehead and the top of the brain and you imagine that that's like the lid, right? that when we get emotional, further down in the brain, we could imagine gets hot. The emotion center gets hot. And when it gets hot, then we flip our lids and our rational human capacity for reasoning, for taking in new information, for problem solving, like we flip our lid. We literally, because the flow of information from the front back, from the prefrontal cortex to the rest of the brain and the body is difficult at the best of times because of the way the brain developed from the bottom up. And when we are emotional, it's even more difficult. So what we're left with when we lose our higher capacities is the kind of, I, I think maybe reflex might be a good word, the kind of thing we've always done because we can't be creative. We can't solve problems. We have to grab a response in the moment and we grab what is what is our habit, what we have practiced right? So under stress, we become more of who we've always been, unless we have taken on the specific practice like anything else. If we don't know how to do it and we don't practice it, we can't use it. But at the same time, like a language, right? If you practice, the more you practice, the more you become fluent. And the same with like coping skills, they can be learned. 100% resilience can be learned. Absolutely. Um, stress resilience can be learned. And uh, like any skill, if you want to learn it, you are your learning and mastery is more effective if you do it in a formal, structured manner. But I wanted to make sure I understand this, though, but yeah. because when you use the phrase a uh, 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 coping mechanism, we're not. I don't think that you mean that we are able to take. Just or do you mean that we're able to take on more stress, or that we're able to relieve our stress? Thank you for asking that. I would not advocate stretching our capacity to accommodate more because I believe that ultimately piling things on like the metaphor of the straw that broke the camel's back, like that's, that's actually true in stress terms where we can go along with this one thing and that one thing and this one thing and that one thing and do fine. Yes. But then the last thing comes and it just collapses. The, but what will happen is people only see the last thing and they go, listen, I, you know, I've experienced domestic violence. I've experienced sexual assault. I've experienced, I don't know, uh, like an economic crash and it ruined me financially. Why all of a sudden now when the transmission drops out of my car, I can't handle that. It's nothing. Why? What's my problem? It's, it's because it's the 15th or the 100th thing. And, and it just literally really broke the camel's back. So I would not advocate to um, expand your capacity to, to have as a goal to expand your carrying capacity for stress. That said, though, when we have skills to address the demand, we feel more capable. We have a sense that we have, we, oh, I can handle this. 
And so our response to it is modulated by our ability to respond, by our sense of being capable, by our sense of capacity, right? And so the impact of the stressor is different when we feel empowered to handle it. And so we could say that the ultimate result is that you are better able to handle stress both in the moment and over the long term. But I wouldn't, I, and that's a good thing, but I wouldn't say, oh yes, I'm going to develop stress resilience so I can handle more because we need again, that flow back and forth between acute stress is great, right? Because it's what helps us respond. Uh, but we do need the flow where we have time to restore because all the skills in the world will not help you restore. You need restorative time to do that. There was a period of time when I was in a very, very stressful situation at work uh, for an extended period of time. And my definition of uh, relief is like, okay, I plop myself in front of TV for like, and, and just watch you know, funny, you know, science, you know, those kinds of funny uh, comedies for like two hours and just laugh my yes. my head off and thinking, okay, that's stress relief. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you because so lying on the couch in and of itself is neutral. And but the choice you made to laugh when you pay attention to what happens in your physiology when you laugh, what did you notice? Well, like whatever the weight was felt lighter at the end of the hour and a half that I was watching yeah. funny things. And I literally yeah. chose funny things. Yes. I didn't want to watch so... criminal anything. It's like fun. It has to be funny things. Yeah. And that was intuitively very wise because what you were doing was inviting the happy hormones in your body and uh, um, encouraging your body to, to, um, to, um, generate these happy hormones for you and these happy hormones evoke the 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 state that you want that is the counterbalance to the activated state so choosing funny stuff and laughing is actually uh is stress relief and you were right however you do make an important distinction with uh that you didn't watch stressful stuff because stressful stuff then invites your body to activate again and you know, it's not, again, they're not bad in and of themselves, but they're neutral. And what we want is to, is to evoke the other, the, the, the balance, the counterbalance experience. And so um, there are three principles of stress relief that I teach. One, soothe, two is discharge, and three is nourish. And so laughing is an emotional discharge and it was good to do. But you can see how like a neutral thing doesn't, doesn't offer it's an escape. It's a timeout. It's, it's, it's different from the stress, but it's not the opposite of the stress. Do you know what I mean? It's in the middle. Okay. What about sleeping? Good, having a good night's sleep. Is that enough? <gasps> so important. <laughs> so important. Okay. Sleep is more than just rest, right? Because it's restored. It's restoration for your physical body. And it's also restoration for your mind. All kinds of cellular repair occurs overnight when we sleep. And so sleep is extreme. It's not just a timeout. It's not just, I'm going to lie down and do nothing. It really, there are very, uh, we could say productive things that are occurring when we sleep and so sleep is and for mental health also like sleep deprivation is a torture is an instrument of torture right so we have to remember that that has very severe psychological impact to not be able to sleep so it is sleep is really important yeah excellent what about like hanging out at the bar with your friends 
Is that well? Social interaction is—I I would put it in the nourishing department. Like, I mean, again, it depends on your personality type, right? You have to find your own way of social interaction, and so. For uh, somebody who's very introverted, it might be spending time with us with a trusted other person, like one trusted other person. But when you think about being out at the bar, like social engagement is when we're in fight or flight, our social engagement center is offline, right? And when we're in, when we're um, stepping into social engagement, stepping into befriending activities, that's the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the rest and digest, tend and befriend state. It's also fun and fun. Like if you're if you're having a fun time with your friends at the bar, laughing and interacting with one another, that's also a nourishing experience because it's it's giving you it's giving you a sense of liveliness, right, and of of um, connection to other people and of a world bigger than yourself. So it could be also a nourishing experience. But the reason that I teach the principles is because what works for one person won't work for another. And you're a perfect example where for you, the bar hanging out with friends might not be your nourishing strategy. Mm -mm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like a person can have a perfectly mentally healthy life and be a, be a single, solo, quiet, stay at home person. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. When I was uh, working in corporate America, this was really funny because after a really tough week, there will be some of us who would say, let's head to the bar to kind of mm -hmm. stress relieve and wine. Yeah. And then there are some of us who are like, I can't wait to get home and just like get, a, you know, get myself into a hot bath or like read a book quietly with a glass of wine. Yes. And that's the soothing, that's the soothing aspect. Like those are examples of soothing because when we're in the activated state, we're in a state of alarm. So one of the purposes of soothing is to send it's okay messages, right? If you've ever noticed when you're upset and you try to tell yourself you're upset, what happens? I mean, you try to tell yourself not to be upset. What happens? It's war. I don't know. For me, it's worse. If you tell, right? well, yeah, if yeah. you tell me, relax I, i'm not gonna, gonna relax i'm gonna i'm just gonna knock your lights <laughs> oh, out no. thanks that was so helpful it isn't right what that part what the body mind needs is experiences of you can relax and so the soothing soothing activities lets the body know and the mind know that there is no bear that you are safe and okay Language doesn't work at that level. We need experiences. And so that's why it, for you, for example, the bath works or the lowered, you know, the quiet, calm, kind of semi-dark environment, right? It's, it, it's, it's sending you it's okay messages, which then also evokes the um, tend and befriend, rest and digest aspect of the nervous system that you need to be able to restore yourself. So it's literally soothing, like things that will calm you down or soothe the nerves and so that you're not... I'm imagining like from like a ten, ten uh, tense clenched yes. sort of yes. mode to like a more like okay I'm gonna I can open up it's you know, yeah, that kind like, of thing is what I'm imagining <sighs> yes okay. whatever it, whatever it is that makes you do that that's what you do that's soothing so that's soothing so what is discharge first of all do so we, we need all three yeah okay you do need a I would recommend choosing strategies from all three of those okay. So we talked a little bit about discharge before. So I referred to, if you remember, how the body behaves when it's under threat, mm -hmm. right? It's got all this pent-up energy for fighting or running, 
But if we don't get to fight or run, we're left with this cortisol and this adrenaline and these tight muscles and all this, like, what do I do with it? And what will often happen is that if it stays in the body, like there's a feedback loop between the mind and the body, right? And so tension in the body, the mind will go, ooh, my body's tense. Something must be up. There must be something wrong. What's wrong? And then it starts with the thoughts that go around and around, right? And so depleting the body's energy by moving some way is one aspect of the discharge. It's the physiological side of things. And then the other aspect we talked about is the emotional discharge, crying, laughing, sharing with somebody, uh, making space for your emotions, writing them down. That's the two sides of discharge. There's the mental emotional side and there's the physiology. So like literally like letting the energy off of your body. So like, so whether that's like physical movement could be. Yeah the thing. Yes, 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 absolutely. And in fact, many people find that they need to do the discharge, the physiological discharge, the movement before they can engage in soothing behaviors, because they are still, I can't relax. It's almost like, right, I have to like do something. Gotcha, gotcha. I I used to get lots of stress hives. I don't anymore. Uh, that uh, This is a change in my lifestyle that has facilitated this. But when I was in a very stressful corporate environment, I would get stress hives. It was it was as if my body was telling me, pay attention. I would say that you're, it was not as if. Was I would <laughs> say it was absolutely your body saying, pay attention, mm-hmm. because that's what stress symptoms are. It's your body's own, your body can't speak in words. It can't stand in front of you and give you a smack and say, hey, pay attention. Mm-hmm. So it gives you experiences. It communicates through experiences. It communicates through the body. So headaches, muscle tension, trouble sleeping, digestive troubles, mm-hmm. uh, immune immune responses like hives, right? Mm-hmm. Where your immune system just becomes, behaves yeah. uh, out of the norm. These are all, it's like the check engine light on the dashboard of your car. Yeah, exactly. We should really listen more to our body instead of like China. I think there's a heroic sort of no, I can I can take on and you know, I can I can do it. Oh, I'm only going on 2 hours. It's okay. I can take it. Like there's almost like that heroic sort of feeling that comes over you when you say, "No, no, 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 pile it on. I can take it on." <laughs> well, it helps you tell yourself like that you're it help it feeds the story that you're strong. Yes. And that you're capable and competent. Um, and I invite people to consider w- that they are stronger with support. You know, we're inclined to think that when we reach out for help, when we reach out for support, that is weakness. But if you stop to think about, like, what about a dike that has a hole in it? Is it stronger with support or is it stronger if you leave the hole? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Exactly. A tree that's leaning over. If it ha- is it is it stronger? Is it going to stand up straight and grow better if we leave it alone, or is it going to be stronger and last longer if we give it some support? It's obvious when you think about it in these terms that it, it's very it's a very literal literal principle that when we support things, they can be stronger. And the same with humans, we are stronger with support. Yes, we just need to learn how to ask. Well, yes, that's a really important point. We need to know how to ask and we need to know who to ask. And I think that's one of the things that prevents people from reaching out for support is that um, we think that the edict, okay, we're stronger with support and so you should reach out. And so in their distress, people reach out to just whoever's nearby. And that's not helpful because what uh, you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. 
And so this is the value of lining up your support ahead of time so that you can kind of triage and kind of vet who are my close people, who are the people I can go to, and who are the people that they're great friends. And when I'm in stress, the responses they give me aren't helpful. So I'm going to be discerning about who I ask. But when you're upset because you can't think straight, trying to figure out who to ask is going to be really hard. And this is, again, what I come back to about putting the structures and the practices in place ahead of time, practicing your resilience skills, knowing who you're going to ask, having this in place because you can't be creative. You can't troubleshoot when you flip your lid. Yeah, I really like that because at the point of stress, if you don't know, you're just going to reach out to whoever is the closest that who might not be the best person to help you. And then it becomes like a vicious cycle because then you're going to see, okay, that's why I can't ask for help because nothing, you know, it doesn't help. That's right. Oh my goodness. And it's not to say like they all have good intentions, right? It's not, it's not that it's not that the person you reach out to who doesn't respond the way you want them to is a bad person. It's just that their response is out of alignment with what you right. need. Right, exactly. So is that is support a form of nourishment, which is the third piece, or nourish is something else? I would say that that support can be a form of nourishment, like uh, confiding in a friend or something like that. And nourishment overall is an experience that fills your cup. Um, it's an experience that gives you the energy to keep on going. So for example, uh, 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 like uplifting experiences. So a good example um, is like a concert, a musical concert, if that's something that you like and have experienced and how you can be uplifted. Like it's, it can be really kind of a spiritual experience, right? Uh, Where you're moved. Watching the sunset can be uh, nourishing. Um, going to a worship service can be nourishing, reading inspirational, like um, even a secular but inspirational book, right, that really, oh, like I feel seen and heard, that feels good to me. Um, nourishment, of course, like physical, also physical nourishment is important, like nourishing food and uh, massage can be like a nourishing experience too, if that's for you, if that helps you, helps fill your cup and make you feel like you've got more to keep on going. So nourishing has a really wide range being in flow, having flow experiences, like being in creativity, writing, playing sports, walking, these kind, being in nature. These are all things that really lift us up. And that's the nourishing experience, the nourishing principle. So I would imagine that the best, best practice, quote unquote, best practice is to not wait until we're under stress, to have these things, to know what soothes me or what helps me discharge excess, you know, stress or energy, right? It it behooves us to sort of know what these things are for ourselves. Yes. So there, there are two aspects to stress resilience the way I teach it, which is there's the in the moment stuff when it hits the fan. Mm-hmm. What, what, can, what can we draw on? But our capacity to draw on those things is based on our practice of them. So we need a day-to-day practice of the tools that we want to use. So for just one example, when I'm in distress, the thing that I like to do first is a kind of self-comfort gesture, a self-soothing, this is a, a soothing gesture. And I place my hand on my chest, maybe one or two hands just in my heart space. And I say, I'm noticing that I'm having a tough time right now. Right. I take I take a moment to just be like, right, this is tough. Yeah. But I do that. 
that's a gesture and a self-talk that I use all the time, even when it's like a one or two out of 10. And it has become my reflex gesture so that when I find myself spinning around and things are really high, it, it happens kind of on its own that I kind of take, when I become aware of what's going on, that the first thing I do is I take a breath. I go in my mind, I go, oh, like I'm all worked up. Things are, things are upsetting me. And then, and then the gesture and the breath and that like, okay, I know what's happening here. I'm upset. It's sort of, it feels like it happens by itself because it's become the thing I do. And, and I took it on as a practice and practice all the time. And the, I would say that another daily practice that serves that awareness is a, a kind of a check-in. Mm-hmm. So different people have different ways of checking in with themselves. And again, this is a very idiosyncratic practice, but I would recommend a regular check-in once or twice a day where you can kind of take your stress temperature mm-hmm. or your resilience, like where is my activation level or how, how resourced are my resources feeling really depleted? You can ask yourself whatever question works for you. And to ask yourself that question once or twice a day, just check in with myself. How am I doing? Okay. And you notice where you are so that you can uh, take some proactive, oh, I guess I better up my game on the soothing department because I'm pretty, just for no particular reason, I'm just kind of wound up. Right. But if you don't practice noticing in the moment, like over and over and over again, you won't notice when the hits the fan. Either. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? Or it so gets bad before you notice. It's, it's it, well, really, exactly. really bad, right? Exactly. Yeah. I totally get that. I really like that. I really like this idea of checking it. It's it's almost like, hey, Shula, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, like you would ask a friend. Like it's yes. the same thing. Hey, yeah. Lou, how are you it's doing? It's exactly the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, what's hard is for people to remember to do these things. And this is where accountability really helps. Mm. And anybody who's familiar with goal setting practices, you know, it, what's important is to articulate your goals and to write them down. But then it's important also to have some sort of accountability to mm-hmm. keep you on track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having like a stress best friend, your stress bestie, Yes, you know, and you can do, you can check in with one another in a very simple, in, in any, you know, you could have a heart to heart conversation once a week, or you could text each other every morning. How are you doing? How are you doing? And that just let, you know, a t- a, a, like you could have an agreement out of t- where 10 out of 10 is, it's a big disaster and zero out of 10 is I'm doing great. And you just text each other, how are you doing? And you send each other back. Oh, I'm five. Oh, I'm 10. Yes. And that it just becomes a way of staying on track. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and also, it doesn't have to be that you provide solutions to each other. It's just, no. it's a way for you to remind yourself to check with yourself. How am I doing? Yes, right, exactly. Right. Um, Shula, can you talk a little bit about your work? What, why do you know about these things? Well, I'm a, I'm a trauma survivor, a survivor of chronic uh, and acute stress. And so um, when I began when I really, really got into my, I've been in therapy most of my life, but um, what made the difference was getting into therapy about 20 years ago, 20, 19 years ago with a therapist who understood trauma and its impact on the nervous system. And um, that made the difference. So I learned about what I needed for my own recovery, because again, it's a question of the wear of the chronic, chronic stress emotionally and physically. Uh, so I began to understand and practice it for myself. And the very short story about how I became engaged in this work professionally is that in my late teens, early 20s, I went to university uh, to social work. I went to a social work program, but I got diverted and went into radio and TV and then ended up in communications for a while. Uh, And um, 
was working as a translator and became injured on the job uh, because translation is typing, right? It's doing text. And I had to do my own occupational rehabilitation. So I chose to go back to my roots and get a master's degree in counseling and work as a psychotherapist supporting people in recovering from stress and trauma. So that's how I learned. So I, I learned it myself experientially and then understood professionally the theory and the practice behind it and how to support others so that they could step into their own recovery journey as well. So today, do you work one-on-one with people or do you teach or do you do group counseling? How, what, what do you do? So as I left in school, as you know, they don't, they teach you to be a good technician. They don't teach you how to run a business. And so when I left the master's program, I was an excellent, a very competent therapist, but I didn't know anything about how to be financially successful in business. And so I went right into business training and hanging out with entrepreneurs. I came to understand the unique challenges that entrepreneurs face in terms of mental health and people who can provide entrepreneurs with professional emotional support are very rare because the majority of people don't understand the unique circumstances. Mm-hmm. So they they can be very good therapists, but to not understand what the challenges are and how they can be mitigated means that it's less effective as a match. And so understanding the intersection of mental health and entrepreneurship, I went on to work exclusively as a mindset and resilience consultant for women entrepreneurs uh-huh. so that they could stay sane as they ride yes. that emotional start <laughs> running a business. Well, Shula, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with me and the audience of Second Breaks. I want to thank Shula for sharing her insight and expertise with us. Please check the show notes at secondbreaks.com for the links and highlights of this episode. Now, as I mentioned up top, we're doing a mini-series on midlife health and well-being. And so it's a special treat to you, my dear listener friend. We're going to be switching to a weekly cadence for the rest of the series. So for the rest of June, basically, you're going to hear me or there's going to be a new episode dropping in your feed. This is so that we could have all the midlife health and well-being episodes, you know, kind of together, right? On our next conversation, we're going to talk with gynecologist and the Chief Medical Officer of Bonafide, Dr. Alisa Dweck. And she and I are talking about sexual health in our middle age. If you haven't yet, now is a good time to hit that subscribe or follow button so you don't miss that episode with Dr. Dweck and the rest of the series, in fact. Okie dokie, I'll be back next week with my conversation with Dr. Dweck. Until then, keep on making your dent, my friend. Cool beans.